Hello, everyone, and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. I'm Shanna Schuster, the Visitor Engagement and Program Manager at USS Slater, and today we're going to de-classify USS Slater. you up to understand the mission of destroyer escorts, why this new type of ship was built for World War II, and why these ships were built with different methods of propulsion. After we get the origins down, we'll move on to the history of USS Slater. As I sit inside her supply office currently recording this episode, it's important to understand that this museum is meant to honor every destroyer escort and every sailor who served aboard one. We work daily to preserve their place in history. So let's dive in. So what is a DE? Well, it's a naval ship. Now, unless you're well-seasoned in naval knowledge, many of you are probably picturing an aircraft like the Midway in San Diego, or a battleship like the Arizona, the one that you see in all the Pearl Harbor footage. Those ships are so much bigger than a destroyer escort. Arizona is 600 feet long, and 97 feet wide. She had a crew of over a thousand sailors. Midway is a thousand feet long, 238 feet wide, with a crew of 4,000 people. DEs are just over 300 feet long, 35 feet wide. They have a crew of about 200. So most battleships are twice the length of DEs, and aircraft carriers are more than three times the length. Destroyer escorts are just about the smallest ship that the Navy would allow out into the open ocean. Some people call them mini destroyers. That's not wrong, but having a close relationship with these ships, they are so much more than that. In appearances and armament, sure, think mini destroyer, but in spirit, they are a beast all their own. These tin cans, as they're affectionately called, were made as cheap and as quickly as possible with whatever materials were available at the time. Their outer hull is not armored and measures five-eighths of an inch thick. That's right. Not even an inch of steel separates you from the cold waters of the North Atlantic while U-boats are hunting you. Destroyer escorts owe their origins to the Battle of the Atlantic the longest sustained battle of World War II. This was a grueling, six-year struggle to keep the sea lanes between North America and Europe free of German submarines. England is an island nation, dependent upon ships to bring her food, fuel, and raw materials. When she stood alone against Nazi Germany in 1940 and 41, it was the United States that committed itself to be the arsenal of democracy. The U.S. was determined to keep England supplied so she could fight on. Nazis used U-boats to sink ships heading to and from England carrying provisions. The convoys of ships sailing across the Atlantic in all seasons not only had to do battle with German submarines and aircraft, but they also had to contend with some of the worst weather known to mariners. Old destroyers, corvettes, and trawlers were used prior to the arrival of destroyer escorts in 1943. The Navy sent out a press release in December of 43, pulling no punches in its description of the conditions faced by the sailors who fought the U-boats. The release read in part, On the destroyers, half the men watch and work while the other half sleeps. The guns are manned. The fires are lit under all the boilers. The cooks and bakers work to feed the men who are awake and hungry. Night is the same as day. For there is never any real sleep without the fear of the submarine or the pounding of your body against the bulk chains or thinking of someone ashore or being in pain or waiting for the time to go on watch again or praying or wishing you'd get killed all of a sudden when it happened, watching the bursting of an ash can. The release continues. 
The lifeline to England, Russia, and Africa is a herd of rusty hulls, prodded along by battered destroyers. How do the hulls hold out after years of neglect, of oxidizing, stripping, and sagging? How can they go and return, go and return, and go again when their obsolescence is a waterfront joke? And even the insurance companies shake their heads. What of the United Nations when the seams split and the rivets shear and the shafts burn out? When the sea smashes the bulwarks and the hatches? When the oil is foul with salt water? When the coal is wet with the sea? How can they go on? Look to the men. Look to the men who can endure the wet and the cold and the sickness and the fear and the work with no rest. This statement summed up the weariness and fear that resulted from the seemingly endless struggle the convoys faced, battling U-boats and the Atlantic itself in old, worn-out ships. The destroyer escorts owe their existence to the desperate times created by the Nazi U-boat menace. In the dark days of 1940 and 41, when that island nation stood alone against fascism, the British Admiralty recognized the need for a small, maneuverable vessel to escort the convoys and protect the merchant ships and their valuable cargoes from U-boats. With their own shipyards too busy to design and build the required ships, they turned to America, the arsenal of democracy, for help. The end result was the destroyer escort. Many of the destroyer escort's design features came from British experience, gained from submarine engagements during 1939 through 41. They were the direct descendants of the British Hunt-class destroyers. The Hunt was an economically scaled-down destroyer that served successfully as a convoy escort. The British requested that 50 similar vessels be built under the Lend-Lease program. The American design firm of Gibbs and Cox was contracted to design the ships which incorporated many of the British features. On January 20th, 1943, the first destroyer escort, USS Brennan, was commissioned. 562 sisters would follow her into surface during World War II. The U.S. Navy was so impressed with the design and performance of these ships that only 78 ended up being transferred to England and France. The remainder served in the U.S. Navy throughout the war. Destroyer escorts, the small yet proud ships, honored the sailors that gave their lives protecting their nation. Smaller than the typical destroyer, each ship was manned by a crew of teenagers and commanded by officers only a few years older. At roughly half the displacement of a destroyer, destroyer escorts carried a much smaller crew and armament. However, Thanks to the mass civilian mobilization into the defense industry and their smaller size, DEs had a faster construction period of about three and a half months, compared to the more than six months for a destroyer. USS Feberling DE-640 was the fastest to be built and commissioned at 23 and a third days. The rapid mass production of so many ships in such a short period of time was matched by the incredible feat of training the crews to man these ships. The DE crews were drawn from Navy and Coast Guard reservists. Most of the ships were placed in service with 95% of the crew never having been to sea before. They learned on the job and were united into efficient, smoothly operating units. The bond they formed with their ships has continued for the rest of their lives. DEs were built in shipyards all across America, and the shipbuilders used whatever surplus materials they had on hand. So some DEs get 5-inch guns, and some get 3-inch. Some classes have boilers, and some run on diesel. And the men that make up their crews, most are 17 or 18 years old. Some were younger and lied their way into enlistment. Most of them had never been to sea before. Most of them had never had indoor plumbing before. Let that sink in for a minute. For some of them growing up during the Great Depression, this might be the first time they've had indoor plumbing. This might be the first time they've been offered three meals a day. The officers of these ships were not much older. They had probably been to sea before, but never held command. 
Because DEs were such small ships, they went without many amenities that other ships were privy to. Lightheartedly, we like to point out ice cream machines as an example of this. Most Navy ships in the U.S. fleet had ice cream makers on board. It makes for a welcome treat in the heat of the Pacific. DEs did not have them, but there was one DE that did. And it just happened to be the one commanded by President Roosevelt's son, the USS Olvert M. Moore, DE-442. I guess there's some perks to being the president's son. I'm sure he'd list ice cream at the top of that list. On a more serious note, DEs were not large enough to warrant their own trained doctor. We had pharmacist mates who had very little training at all. Slater crew member Earl Labor had this to share with us. I remember I used to get very seasick, and uh, I was in the engine room, and I was laying down uh, below the uh, hatch to come down, and I heard things shifting around, and I thought, maybe I'd ought to get out of here. And I just stood up, and a hail came down through, and cutting my head open. And uh, so I went to the sick bay, and I remember him opening a book and uh, taking a picture he had and starting to wrap my head up. That from the remember. picture. From the picture. <laughs> First aid by the book. Yeah, that's right. This was all the pharmacist mates could do. They followed directions out of the manual and did the best that they could. If an injury was more than they could handle, we had to either bring a more qualified doctor aboard from another bigger ship or get our patient transferred to that other ship. We've heard stories of pharmacist mates performing appendectomies while having an assistant read the procedure to them out of the book. The 563 destroyer escorts built during World War II were divided into six classes. Four of the six classes mounted 3-inch 50 guns, while the last two mounted the larger 5-inch 38 guns. The various destroyer escort classes also mounted different types of propulsion, depending primarily upon what type of engine was available due to the high demands of new construction. The Everts class was the first type of destroyer escort to enter service in early 1943. These ships, commonly referred to as the short-haul destroyer escorts, were 290 feet long, 16 feet shorter than the other five DE classes. They mounted three 3-inch 50 guns, a variety of anti-aircraft guns, depth charges, and a hedgehog for anti-submarine combat. The Everts class was the only destroyer escort type that did not carry torpedo tubes as built. In all, 97 Everts class DEs were built in American shipyards. 32 of these were given to the British Navy, while the rest remained in U.S. service. Although the Everts class proved the concept of the mass-produced destroyer escort, their relatively short range and poor seakeeping characteristics made them an unpopular design. Many of the shortcomings of the Everts class were rectified with the second class of destroyer escorts, the Buckley class. Buckley class featured a longer hull that improved seakeeping and increased range. These ships carried a similar armament to the Everts class, but they were the first destroyer escort type to carry torpedoes on board. Buckley's carried a turboelectric propulsion plant, which gave it more speed and better range than the Everts. Numerically, Buckley class was by far the largest DE class. By the war's end, 154 Buckleys had been produced. 43 of these ships went to the British Navy. The Cannon class was the third destroyer escort type to enter service. This is one of the smallest classes produced during the war, with 72 completed by 1945, including USS Slater. The Cannon class was very similar in design to the Buckley's, the primary difference being a diesel-electric power plant instead of the Buckley's turboelectric design. The fuel-efficient diesel-electric plant greatly improved the range of the Cannon class, but at the cost of speed. Eight Cannon-class destroyer escorts were given to the Brazilian Navy during World War II, while six more were given to the Free French Navy. Except for the propulsion, the Edsel class was nearly identical to the Cannon class in every respect. This fourth class of DE mounted a direct-drive diesel configuration that proved to be extremely reliable. 
85 Edsels were built during World War II. 37 of the Edsel-class ships have the distinction of being the only DE-class manned by U.S. Coast Guard personnel during the war. Many of the Edsel-class ships were converted after World War II into long-range radar picket ships. These ships are known as DERs and were some of the last DEs to be taken out of service in the late 1960s. The 5th Destroyer Escort class, the Rudder Row, represented a major departure from the original design. This was the first class to mount 5-inch 38 guns instead of the usual 3-inch 50s. Rudder Row class ships also featured a completely redesigned, much lower superstructure than that found on earlier DEs. 72 Rudder Row class DEs were built during 44 and 45. Most of these ships were converted into high-speed transports, known as APDs. Only 21 of the Rudderow class ended the war in their original configuration. The final class of destroyer escorts produced during the war was the John C. Butler class. These ships were outwardly identical to the Rudderow class, but they mounted the steam-driven turbine propulsion plant that was common to most ships in the United States Navy at the time. Butler-class ships represented the peak of destroyer escort design. They combined many characteristics of the earlier classes with the weapons and propulsion plants that the other classes lacked due to limited American industrial capacity when the DE project began. 83 Butler-class ships were built during the war, and many of them remained active in the Navy long after World War II ended. In the post-war period, the Navy recognized that due to the massive Soviet submarine buildup, the need still existed for lower-end escort ships, such as the DE. With this in mind, the lower-end class of ships began with the Dealey-class single-screw DEs. Though built in relatively small numbers, the idea behind them was to be able to produce large numbers quickly should an emergency arise. These were followed by the diesel-powered and experimental Claude Jones class, soon to be followed by the more sophisticated Bronstein, Garcia, and Knox class, and then the Oliver Perry class frigates, which were increasingly larger and sophisticated but remained single-screw. The Knox and Perry class ships were built in a large number and served as the mainstay low-end escort vessel into the 1990s. In 1975, all DEs were reclassified as frigates to keep the U.S. Navy in line with NATO designations. Over 50 DEs were transferred to foreign navies under the Military Defense Assistant Program. These destroyer escorts served in the U.S. and Allied navies very effectively during World War II and continued to serve through the Cold War years, including active service during Korea and Vietnam. The last of these ships was retired from U.S. Naval Service in 1972. Meanwhile, a few sister ships soldiered on in diminishing numbers in foreign service into the 90s. As of 2019, six are known to exist worldwide. Two in the United States, USS Slater and USS Stewart. USS Rushamkin DE-228 slash APD-89 is in Colombia. The USS Heminger DE-746 is in Thailand, still active in the Thai Royal Navy. USS McCann DE-179 is a museum ship in Brazil. And USS Atherton, DE-169, is in the Philippines. Destroyer escorts were the modern warships that replaced the old destroyers and corvettes. They had borne the brunt of fighting since the war had begun. Rear Admiral Sheldon Kinney, who commanded several destroyer escorts, wrote of these new ships and their crews. The DE legacy is a story of an astonishingly able, mass-produced vessel that made a critical difference in the successful war at sea in World War II. Importantly, it is a story of the Navy and Coast Guard men who served in these ships. Men heroic in combat, long-suffering in endless watches, capable of enduring cruel seas, cold, heat, boredom, while waiting, watching, then suddenly 
rising to amazing capability in crisis. I want to finish this history of destroyer escorts with the words of famous war correspondent Ernie Pyle and his poem titled, Short Cruise on a Destroyer Escort. They are rough and tumble little ships. Their afterdecks are laden with depth charges. They can turn in half the space of a destroyer. Their forward guns can seldom be used because waves are breaking over them. They roll and they plunge. They buck and they twist. They shudder and they fall through space. Their sailors say they should have both flight pay and sub pay both. They're in the air half the time and underwater half the time. Their men are accustomed to being wet and think nothing of it. Now that you have a good idea of what a DE is, let's talk more about my favorite one, USS Slater. I might be a little bit biased, but considering she is keeping me out of the Hudson River right now, I think she can safely hold on to that title. In the US Navy, destroyers and destroyer escorts were named for individuals who had served with distinction and gave their lives in service of their country. USS Slater is named in honor of Frank O. Slater. Frank was born in Fife, Alabama on the 19th of December in 1920. He enlisted in the United States Naval Reserve on the 10th of February, 1942. Upon completion of basic training, Frank was transferred to the receiving station in Pearl Harbor for reassignment. He served aboard the heavy cruiser USS San Francisco from the 4th of April to the 12th of November in 1942. It was on the 12th when he was killed in action at his battle station during an air attack at the Battle of Guadalcanal. He was awarded the Navy Cross for gallantry in action, posthumously, for continuing to fire his anti-aircraft gun while a Japanese aircraft crashed directly into his gun battery. The rest of his crew also have destroyer escorts named in their honor. Frank was buried at sea and has a grave marker at Arlington National Cemetery. USS Slater, DE-766, was laid down on the 9th of March, 1943, by the Tampa Shipbuilding Company in Tampa, Florida. She was launched on the 13th of February in 1944 and was sponsored by Frank's mother, Mrs. Nora L. Slater. This ceremony was the first time that many members of Frank's family had left the county they were born in. The Frank family showed up in force to the christening. They piled into two cars that they had to borrow from neighbors to make the drive to Tampa. Frank's brother, Elam, would go on to serve aboard this ship named after his brother and man a 40-millimeter gun. The Frank family were sharecroppers, and the money they earned with Frank's life insurance literally bought the farm. And now they owned the land they had farmed for so long. The bottle Mrs. Slater used to christen the ship was not filled with the customary champagne, but water from the farm's well. The ship was commissioned into naval service on the 1st of May, 1944, with Lieutenant Commander Marcel Blanc in command. Her initial outfit included three 3-inch 50 caliber guns, one Mark IV twin 40mm Bofors gun, 10 single 20mm Orlikon guns, and one 24 spigot Mark X hedgehog projector. She was also equipped with two Fantail depth charge racks, eight Mark VI depth charge projectors, and a triple torpedo tube launcher. At that time, she was painted out in a camouflage pattern, which the Navy called Measure 22, which was mostly gray in color. Slater is 306 feet in length, with a crew of 216 officers and men. Slater embodied the latest anti-submarine warfare equipment, including sonar, an echo-ranging system providing distance and position information of underwater targets. Two radar systems were in operation, 
The surface search radar was dedicated to detecting surface targets, which was critical in locating submarines at night while they were using their radios and charging their batteries. The air search radar gave early warning of approaching enemy aircraft. The primary anti-submarine weapons were the depth charges and the Hedgehog anti-submarine mortars. Slater has a light load displacement of 1,240 tons and a full load displacement of 2,000 tons. USS Slater's power system is diesel electric in design. She has four General Motors 16-cylinder diesel engines located in the forward and aft engine rooms. These engines power four Westinghouse direct current main propulsion generators. The generators in turn power four direct current DC motors that are coupled to the two propeller shafts with two motors in tandem on each shaft. The two shafts turn the two six foot diameter propellers. USS Slater can develop 600 shaft horsepower for a top speed of 21 knots. Usual cruising speed is about 15 knots. Because Slater has two rudders, she was very maneuverable. On the 17th of May, 1944, while still in Tampa, a fire broke out in the B-3 ship's service generator. Machinist mate Ed Lavin was injured trying to put out this fire. We talked to Ed many years ago, and this is what he had to say. I can still hear Rosie say, look out, whatever you're doing, and thing I went down, and next thing you know, the whole thing was all, I took a couple of CO2 bottles, tried to, well, first of all, I tried to get the engine to stop. The 268A was a straight eight uh, ship service generator engine, and it was very temperamental. If they got any amount of lube oil fumes in the crankcase, that thing would take off like crazy. And the only way we could really stop it quickly would be to open the back tires down the valve and relieve the pressure and then it'd stop. So I had gotten two of them open, maybe three, I don't know. But anyway, the fire was, by this time it went bang and I get, I can still see the skin peeling off my arm. And they, so I took the CO2 bottle, stuck it under the intake, and that was, that, I think that was just about the last thing I can remember because I, I kept trying to breathe and I couldn't breathe and it was burning. To this day, I have very poor taste in me. But I mean, that was the end. The next thing you know, I wound up in McDowell Field and Burn Unit. That was the last that Ed saw of the Slater until he visited in the late 90s and sat down for that interview with us. After the fire was taken care of, Slater sailed for Bermuda to complete her shakedown cruise. A shakedown cruise is when ships and crews take time to train and ensure that all equipment is operational. Basically, they're going to work out all the kinks before they go out on an actual mission. Slater's shakedown was unusually eventful. In June 1944, she was ordered to make a speed run to Solomon, Maryland, carrying a torpedo for analysis. The torpedo had been recovered from the U.S. Navy's capture of a German U-boat, U-505. A very interesting story in and of itself, the capture of U-505 was also carried out by destroyer escorts, and will most certainly be the star of a future episode of DE Classified. Furthermore, U-505 is now on display at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. This was a huge deal that this sub was captured. German submariners tried everything they could do to never allow Allied powers to gain control of a U-boat, and now the U.S. had a vessel to study and learn from. Who knows what kind of secrets they could uncover? After dropping off the torpedo, Slater sailed to Boston. During this period, she went into the yard and had her torpedo tubes removed and replaced with four single-barrel, Army-style, 40 millimeter guns. During this overhaul, the large chart room behind the pilot house was converted into a Combat Information Center, or CIC. And the adjacent Captain C cabin was converted into a small chart room. She then sailed for Key West, Florida on the 11th of July, where she acted as a target ship for torpedo bomber squadrons and as a sonar school ship. 
So planes are firing dummy torpedoes at us for practice, and we're training with our sonar equipment to track those torpedoes. But the torpedoes they were firing weren't actually supposed to hit us. Slater took five hits from these dummy torpedoes, and some of that damage is still visible 75 years later. Slater departed Florida for New York on the 15th of September. While en route, many crew members report that a torpedo was fired at the ship. Electrician's mate Earl Labor says, On the way to New York, uh, the story goes we were uh, almost torpedoed, but our sound gear didn't work, so we couldn't locate the sub. Whereas executive officer on the Slater, Harold Paulson, reports, We listen to some of these voice talk. They'll talk about torpedoes. A lot of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw a sub. Never, never saw a. I never saw a torpedo. They'll they'll tell you about the torpedoes. The crew may be divided on whether torpedoes were fired at Slater or not. The logbook makes no mention of a torpedo, but the ship went to general quarters or their battle stations at 12:36 a.m. and at 1:12 a.m. two depth charges were dropped. I guess we'll never know for sure if it was fired at a submarine or not. After all that action during shakedown, Slater is finally available for duty. She began her escort duty by protecting two convoys to England during the remaining months of 1944. These convoys could be made up of up to 150 ships. DEs were responsible, as we learned, for protecting the convoy from U-boat threats. On the 4th of December, Slater made a sound contact, fired two hedgehog salvos, and a depth charge pattern. But no evidence of a hit sub ever surfaced. To Slater's credit, and her sister ships, no ships were harmed during any of the crossings. In early 1945, Slater was again overhauled. She received the Mark 52 gun director with gunfire control radar for her 3-inch guns and the associated gun fire control radar room on the flying bridge. She emerged from this overhaul painted in measure 32 3D dazzle camouflage, which is the exciting paint scheme you can see her in today. It's very unique for a museum ship. From January to May 1945, she escorted three convoys to Wales. During that time, she depth-charged several suspected submarine contacts, with no confirmed results. She also suffered storm damage when the gun shield of the number one 3-inch gun was torn away by waves, resulting in the flooding of the chief petty officer's mess. In May and June of 1945, she was overhauled again at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Based on the recent experience the Navy had gained from battling kamikaze aircraft in the Pacific, Slater's anti-aircraft armament was considerably augmented for her anticipated participation in the evasion of Japan. Two Navy-style Mark IV twin 40mm mounts replaced her single-barrel Army-style 40mm guns. All her 20mm guns were replaced with twin mountings, and the 20mm gun tubs were cut down in height so that the guns could be depressed to fire at the expected Japanese suicide boats. She left the yard in solid navy blue measure 21. On the 8th of June, she sailed from New York for San Diego, via Guantanamo Bay and Panama. She transited the Panama Canal on the 28th of June and arrived in San Diego on the 6th of July. Three days later, the ship sailed for Pearl Harbor, from Pearl, she was routed via Anatawak to the Philippine Islands. Slater supply officer John Agnew said this. Uh, anyhow, we were going to be operating in the Pacific. Uh, the ultimate plan being that we would be one of the picket ships involved in setting up the uh, invasion of Japan. Uh, fortunately, that didn't happen. We stopped in Pearl Harbor. I mentioned that. We picked up more crew there and dropped off some crew. We were in Anawitak Atoll when uh, the first atomic bomb was dropped and there were hundreds of U.S. ships, not all of them destroyers, some of them were destroyer escorts, some destroyers, some troop transports, all kinds of things. And you would not believe 
it sounded like 400 uh, stadiums cheering after one touchdown when we got the word that the atomic bomb had been dropped. And of course, then the second atomic bomb was dropped a few days later. Following the secession of hostilities with Japan, on the 5th of September, she escorted a convoy to Yokohama, Japan. In October, Slater found herself inside a typhoon, or hurricanes for people on this side of the world. Earl Labor was trying to continue working inside the engine room and had some difficulties. uh, I remember that night, it was real bad. I had to tie myself against the engine room to, you know, one of the supports to even be able to stand near. I doubt if I could even get to the switchboard. And uh, we were told to put on our life belts and knives, which I kind of doubted we'd even get out of the ship. But uh, when we got stopped, when the storm let up, we were off the China coast somewhere. I I never served aboard uh, above the deck, so I never really knew what was going on. But this is more or less what was told to me when I was down in the Union. Slater escorted convoys to Japan, the Netherlands, East Indies, and to the Caroline Islands. In November, Captain Blanc was relieved by Lieutenant William Martin as commander of the ship. Slater operated in the Philippine Islands until the 31st of January, 1946, when she sailed back for the United States. Slater arrived at San Pedro, California on the 24th of February, 1946, and received orders routing her to Norfolk, Virginia, via the Panama Canal for deactivation. She arrived there on the 26th of March and prepared for decommissioning. A month later, she sailed for Green Cove Springs, Florida, to continue that deactivation process. In May, she was placed in reserve and out of commission, as part of the large mothball fleet that was located in the St. Johns River, just two years after she was launched into commission. don't count Slater out yet. In 1947, President Harry Truman enacted the Truman Doctrine. This doctrine stated that the U.S. would do whatever it could to help stop the spread of communism, even going as far as giving away their war materials. Under the Truman Doctrine, within the Military Defense Assistant Program, USS Slater was struck from the U.S. Navy and transferred to Greece on the 1st of March in 1951. Under this program, it was expected that if the communist bloc invaded Western Europe, escort vessels of our NATO allies, such as Slater, would be available to assist in convoy escort and anti-submarine warfare. USS Slater was renamed ITOS, which translates to Eagle in the Hellenic Navy. Three other DEs joined her in Greece at this time, The USS Eldridge, DE-173, was renamed Leon, or Lion. USS Garfield Thomas, DE-193, was renamed Panther. And the USS Ebert, DE-768, was renamed Irax, or Hawk. This class of ships was affectionately called the Beasts in Greece. And to this day, we hear stories from sailors who trained aboard these ships. They loved their time aboard and were grateful for the might of these ships. Slater began her Greek service in July of 1951. For the next 40 years, she completed 3,223 voyages for cadet training, patrols, exercises, and independent missions. She sailed 617,000 nautical miles. These missions involved NATO maneuvers, naval academy voyages, and trips to ports within the Mediterranean, Africa, Scotland, the North Sea, and South American ports, under 55 commanding officers. She was active during the Cold War and was featured in a number of films, including The Guns of Navarone and Alice in the Navy. By the late 80s, the need for her services had diminished and she was deactivated on the 5th of July, 1991. 
just two days short of 40 years from the date of her arrival in Greece. She was stricken in Crete and stripped of all usable gear and equipment. She was awaiting disposal in Suda Bay, Crete, when she was once again saved for another mission. The third mission in Slater's timeline is obviously where we are today in the historic fleet as a museum ship. The preservation of USS Slater has its roots in the creation of the Destroyer Escort Sailors Association, or DESA. This organization is made up of the men and women who built DEs and the sailors that manned them who left behind a legacy of pride in their service in their nation's time of need. As these young sailors aged, their pride in their service grew and a sense of cohesiveness developed. That bond became the nucleus of the Destroyer Escort Sailors Association and spurred the effort to save one of their ships. The group was founded in the 70s as a veterans association for the men who manned the 563 destroyer escorts built during World War II. In the late 80s, the 15,000 members of DESA began a search to find and save a destroyer escort for posterity. A worldwide effort revealed that only a handful of destroyer escorts remained available for preservation. After five years and several attempts to preserve other DEs, USS Slater was located in Greece. When the Greek government decommissioned Slater in 1991, the veterans set about trying to save her from the scrap heap. At that time, she was the most historically accurate and complete ship of this class left. While her interior had been extensively gutted and cannibalized, she still had most of her World War II armament intact. The Greek government agreed to donate the ship to the veterans, and arrangements were made for the transfer of the vessel through the U.S. State Department. At the time, DESA was an aging organization whose enrollment was exclusive to DE veterans. It was decided to create a new organization, the Destroyer Escort Historical Foundation, to obtain and care for Slater. This would eventually be renamed the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum, which is what Slater is today. The foundation was created in 1993 as a private, not-for-profit, educational corporation, and its goal was to restore USS Slater for the general public as a museum, educational center, and tourism destination. The DE veterans raised $290,000 to have Slater towed back to the United States. Plans were made to temporarily berth her at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City. When she arrived in New York City in August of 1993, her condition was appalling. Remember, the Greeks thought she was trash. Volunteers still talk about the holes in the deck, rust-covered guns, and ladders with missing rungs. But she was the last floating destroyer escort in this country, and the dedicated volunteers of the Statue of Liberty chapter of DESA set about trying to raise the funds to do the work necessary to restore her. Five years later, in 1997, in a decision to downsize their fleet, several of the ships that were berthed at the Intrepid were asked to find new homes. Slater was among them. It was at this point that the city administrators in Albany, New York, recognizing the historic significance of Slater, reached out to Dessa and invited her to take shelter in their Hudson River waterway. The ship arrived in Albany in October of 1997 a new group of volunteers rose to the challenge of restoring the ship. Donating an average of 15,000 hours a year, the volunteers have been working diligently to turn her into a first-class historic naval ship. The volunteers have succeeded. The ship is no longer the rusty hulk that arrived in New York. The volunteers have brought new life to Slater, and she has become the center of a world-class naval preservation effort. The radars and plotting tables now glow in CIC. World War II transmitters spark in Radio Central, 
as antennas carry Morse code to other historic naval ships. All of her guns train and elevate, and the bright work is polished and oiled weekly. Her whaleboat has been fully restored and is operational. It is raised and lowered in the davits, just as it was over 75 years ago. Meals are again cooked in her galley and served on the mess decks. Decks are swept and swabbed. Weather decks are washed down weekly. Her new paintwork makes her look fit for sea duty. Her radar rotates, signal flags flutter, ventilators hum, and fresh water again flows through her plumbing. The colors are raised every morning and lowered every evening. All of the missing equipment has been located and backfitted. She has been painstakingly restored to her 1945 configuration. She's a genuine time capsule of the period. The culmination of restoration effort was the 2014 and 2020 dry docking of the ship in Staten Island for a much needed hull repair below the waterline and a complete refit of the mast. Our supporters to fund these projects raised over $2 million privately. Dozens of preservation and restoration projects were completed, including the repainting of the ship in her World War II dazzle camouflage. Throughout her career as a museum ship, Slater is proud to host many DE ship reunions. We are always amazed and gratified by the former sailor's reaction to the ship and her restoration. We have noticed a new and heartening trend. More and more young people are visiting the ship. They are the sons and daughters of the DE veterans and their sons and daughters. As with other famous American ships, like the Constitution in Boston, the Midway in San Diego, and battleships from coast to coast, the interest in historic ships does not wane. It only increases. The main purpose of the museum is to keep alive the history created by DEs and their crews during the time and service to our nation. Through educational and cultural programs, the museum preserves and passes on the proud history of these trim but deadly warships to the families of those who served aboard them and to the generations of the future. All generations will be able to honor the Navy and Coast Guard sailors who manned them. Slater was officially designated a National Historic Landmark by the United States Department of the Interior in March of 2012. The vessel is often cited by our visitors as one of the most authentically detailed warship museums in the nation. Primary mission of the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum is to utilize the Slater as an educational platform to teach visitors about the contributions of destroyer escorts in World War II and the post-war Navy. This keeps alive the history, spirit, and technology of these vessels and the men and women who built and manned them. The result becomes a better understanding of the significance of the Second World War and the Cold War years and their impact on today's world. To accomplish this, we collect, maintain, display, and interpret artifacts and documents relating to the role of DEs in the U.S. Navy. These artifacts are now on display at USS Slater and can be viewed by thousands of visitors. Currently, over 4,000 items are accessioned, including photographs, books, logs, personal items, enemy battle remnants, and various types of memorabilia. The collection is on display in the afterbirthing compartment C203L and is available to visitors to view. Additional items can be seen throughout the ship to reveal how the ship was equipped when she was at sea. Slater has become what we intended, a virtual time capsule of Navy life in the 1940s, carrying visitors back into history. Our primary emphasis is the authentic restoration and display of the ship herself in her 1945 configuration, with all the equipment and artifacts she would have carried at that time. Our volunteers work to achieve this goal constantly. Their dedication and attention to detail is the backbone of this project, and we wouldn't be here without them. Our maintenance team is amazing, and you can see their work on display and measure their progress in our daily Facebook posts. Something less tangible to measure is the impact our education team has on our community. Not only does this team serve as tour guides, showing over 15,000 visitors around the ship per year, they also run overnight programs, teach lessons in school classrooms, 
and travel to American Legion clubs, libraries, and senior citizen centers to give oral presentations pertaining to DE history. We set up artifact displays, researched and write historical articles, and produced an introductory video shown to visitors before their tour begins. We also produce an electronic newsletter, Slater Signals, a quarterly print newsletter, Trimba Deadly, and we are now releasing monthly podcast episodes here at DE Classified. Our radio gang operates an amateur radio station using World War II vintage equipment and antennas. WW2DEM is their call. Their busiest weekend is Museum Ships Radio Weekend, the first weekend in June. We speak with museum ships from all around the world. I'll leave you with some last words from Earl Labor, our electrician's mate getting tossed around in the engine room. When asked what he wants people to remember from his time aboard Slater, he said this. I guess to tell him that, you know, you look favorable towards, towards the ship that took you through a lot of, although the ship probably, you know, certainly didn't see a lot of action, but hopefully, you know, we protected a lot of convoys. But it was the rough seas that we went through. Um, one particular night, I remember that they sounded uh, uh, general quarters, and uh, it was they notified us that a man had fallen over another uh, overboard on another ship. And I remember looking out in that black sea, huge waves, and thinking, some poor guy is out there. Be impossible to ever find the guy. In another case that happened in the daytime, a fellow on another ship went sleeping in a whaleboat, and the waves caught the whaleboat, tore it off the side. He went into the ocean across, and here again was these mountainous waves. And another ship, and I was closed up to him to throw over uh, life uh, buoys to him so they could haul him aboard. And they did get him. The other ship got him. We didn't. But we were there, and it, uh, I think it was a ship that was made really well to stand the abuse that it took on the North Atlantic. And I've talked to people about how rough the seas got on the North Atlantic. I wonder how many of them actually believe me, but it, it's true. It's all true. If you're looking for even more information on destroyer escorts, or you want to hear the oral histories I've used today in their entirety, head to our website at ussslater.org. It's one of the most complete sources of destroyer escort information in existence and contains links to other DE-related websites. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. I'm Shanna Schuster, and I hope you join us next month to declassify USS Mitchell.